According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, where we will uh, get our first glimpse of the material today, and then we'll turn over to Matthew 20. I think the bulk of our time will be spent in Matthew. Well, we'll bounce back and forth. Episode 37, The Ambition of James and John. The uh, text for this episode is Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28, and Mark 10, verses 35 through 45. So we'll start with Mark, and we'll move on to Matthew after that. Mark 10, 35 says, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right hand and one on your left hand, in, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John, calling them to himself. Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. All right, that's Mark 10:35 through 45. Let's take a moment for prayer. Then uh, we'll turn over to Matthew and we'll resume in the other gospel record. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do come before you today thankful for your grace and truth, thankful for the abundant grace provision you pour out upon us day by day, moment by moment. Father, we thank you for all the blessings, um, in particular this week with the uh, pending certificate and the move and all the glories, Father. We're just uh, undeserving and thankful. So we give you the praise and the glory, and we ask uh, today for your blessing upon our time of study. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we had a week off last week because of the uh, Vacation Bible School. We appreciate that and the, all the blessings associated there. And then next week, uh, also taking the Wednesday off because of the packing, the packing and the moving that we're doing. So uh, we'll cover as much ground as we can today in this episode, and then we'll have to reserve the remainder for uh, two weeks from today in the new building. How about that? So look forward to uh, what the Lord has for us there. All righty. Well, we read through the Mark account already, and uh, the, the big differences are in the Mark account. It's James and John that are directly making this request, and uh, also the reference to baptism, which is uh, not a feature in the Gospel of Matthew. Turning now to Matthew chapter 20, we will read basically the same account where uh, are you able to drink the cup is featured. Uh, but the uh, reference to baptism is not. That's just a slight difference. But the real big difference is in Matthew, we have the uh, inclusion of the, the mother. 
the mother of the sons of Zebedee that gets uh, mentioned here in Matthew 20, 20. Um, then the, and I should point out too, by the way, this comes right on the heels of his uh, message to them that he's going to be mocked and scourged and crucified and on the third day he'll be raised up. And they don't, ha- they don't understand what it is he's trying to teach them there. And they're uh, still focused on trying to score uh, the assigned seating here in, uh, in heaven. So the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, y'all... As the you plural, you all, both of you, do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they, see, he wasn't answering her. He was answering them, and they knew it. They said to him, we are able. And uh, the rest of this is pretty similar to uh, what we just looked at in Mark. All right, well, let's establish some context then. We've got uh, really four main points of study. The meat of this comes in the fourth point, which I don't expect we'll get to today, um, but, uh, dealing with the humility issues that we must maintain in, in uh, the message that he gives to the ten indignant disciples. But let's start with the context under point one. Uh, Mark records James and John as the questioners. But Matthew records their mother's mediation. I should have used mentions instead of records. That would be better. Matthew mentions their mother's mediation. All right. Mark records James and John as the questioners. That's Mark 10.35. In Mark's record is James and John that literally ask the question. Mark 10.35. But in Matthew's account, Matthew records their mother's mediation so we have here as our context mark 10:35 compared to matthew 20:20 20, 20. now is this a contradiction is this uh is there an error in our bibles this is one of these right and the other one wrong okay this episode here helps we've done this dozens of times but this is one of the easiest ones the simplest ones to understand that uh the bible does not have contradictions and the synoptic gospels do not present uh, opposing uh, conundrums that uh, where one cannot be true and the other has to be true and so forth. Everything the Bible says is true. And so we reconcile, we harmonize the synoptic gospel accounts, for example. And so there is no, uh, what's the solution then? Is this a contradiction? How do you resolve the fact that it's the, the boys that are asking the question or it's the mother that's asking the question? See, and both are absolutely true. You can make the claim, and Mark is not untrue when it says that James and John had this request for him, even if they employed their mother as the, as the tool, see, as the stooge, for example. You know, when the youngest child is sent to the parents to request um, the cookies or the soda or whatever it is, Mom, can I have a cookie all right, and mom says, yes, you may have a cookie. And then all the other older siblings, the ones that put her up to it, they then feel that, oh, well, okay. And they 
feel that they have permission now, don't they? Right. So who was really asking the question? Was it the the literal one that was literally speaking the literal words or the uh, were they simply the agent for the representatives behind them? You understand. So um, I believe that's a simple way that we can reconcile these two accounts that the mother was put forward and uh, and actually both are actually true because um, what is to prevent as we harmonize these what is to prevent the mother from asking the question and Christ giving her the, the answer and then subsequent to that saying all right now go send those boys in here and then the James and John coming in asking the same question and getting the same answer see both can actually be uh, uh, true and I, and I think they are I mean that's the that's the nature of how we harmonize these passages so um, in any event uh, I'm suspecting that the mother went first and then uh, he said, all right, now send those boys in here. And then they asked their question next. And he gave both the mother and the boys the same, the same question. All right. So no, uh, no conflict there. All right, now who is this Mrs. Zebedee? Let's spend some time with that. First of all, Zebedee, sub point A. Zebedee is mentioned 12 times in the New Testament. Uh, most of them, though, are the, the paternity statements, right? James, his brother, John, the sons of Zebedee, okay? If you take out the sons of Zebedee sentences, then there's really only one episode that actually features Zebedee himself. So point A, Zebedee is mentioned 12 times in the New Testament, but only one episode features him beyond the references to his paternity of James and John. And so we're not, we won't look at all... 12 times, but just if you're in Matthew, let's uh, flip back to uh, uh, Matthew 4. Although in sheer page numbers, it's probably quicker to turn to Mark 1, but that's all right. Matthew chapter 4, they tell the same story. Matthew 4, verses 21 and 22, compared to Mark 1, verses 19 and 20, it's the same episode. This is when James and John are called to be fishers of men. In fact, Peter and Andrew are called first. But after the uh, temptation in the wilderness and then the beginning of his ministry and um, Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. He said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James and John, and here it is, the sons of Zebedee. All right, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father. So he's actually present for this episode. And uh, they're mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. All right, so we never see Zebedee again. For the rest of the whole deal, we never again see Zebedee. And uh, probably along the lines of, like, what, we never see Joseph again after Jesus is age 12 in the temple. You know, they, they just... Uh, Chances are they died in the interim, since they have not reappeared in the uh, in the narrative record. We never do see him again. All right, Mrs. Zebedee, or Mrs. Z. Is it too much to call her Mrs. Zebedee? Um, she's called. Interestingly enough, she's never called the wife of Zebedee, but she's called the mother. Of the sons of Zebedee. And um, we don't want to 
make too much out of that. That's, it's actually not inappropriate. It's not weird in Hebrew thinking. Uh, we don't doubt their marriage status. Um, but if, in fact, there was a divorce between Zebedee and Mrs. Zebedee, then that would be one way to do it. Uh, the, the text doesn't tell, I and mean, we're just kind of speculating and guessing at some point. But it is noteworthy that every time she shows up, in this episode and at the cross, she's not called the wife of Zebedee. She's called the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And, um, and uh, we don't see her until this episode, as I said. She wasn't introduced back when Zebedee was in the boat mending the nets. And we don't see Zebedee again. So we never have the two of them together in the same narrative and uh, we, we have this perhaps awkward construction related to her as the mother of his son. So um, make that out of that what you will. I don't know that we can read too much into that. Uh, but when she does appear the second time, it's at the cross. And so let's flip forward then to Matthew 27 and take a look. And this is kind of a fun project. You can do this on your own uh, to look up the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John accounts of the crucifixion. And, uh, and I recommend it anyway, um, years ago, I haven't done this for a while, but years ago, uh, I used to read the passion. I used to read a gospel account of the crucifixion once a month. I would read Matthew's account this month. I would read Mark's account next month. I would read Luke's account the month after that, just once a month, three times a year, reading all four gospels and just reminding myself of how I got saved. And, um, been a while since I've done that. Now I need to maybe resume that tradition. Matthew 27:56, and uh, here's after the veil was rent and the tombs are open and all the things. The centurion was standing by. Truly, this was the Son of God. And then we read in verse 55: Many women, many, more than the ones that are named here, a large crowd, many women were there looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. They're not disciples, they're not apostles, they're not Bible communicators, but they are followers and they, well, they're disciples in the sense that they're students, okay? The definition of disciple is student, but they're not apostles, they're not ministers, they're not teachers. And uh, we're told elsewhere that many of them had private means and they were providing financial support. Among them, among the many, was Mary Magdalene who we know quite a bit about, but have we seen her yet in our Life of Christ chronology? I don't think, have we? I don't, I don't believe we have. I'm, I'm, we're 390, 300 and whatever lessons into this. I don't know if we've met Mary Magdalene yet. Maybe we have. And Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. All right. So there's two Marys, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. You say, well, who are James and Joseph? I'm sorry? You could think of Jesus' brothers because Jesus has four brothers, two of whom are James and Joseph, but he has two other brothers named Jude and Simeon. And um, it doesn't say Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and Jude and Simeon. It says Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. So that's, that's a good question, a little puzzle there. And then the mother of the sons of Zebedee. All right, so in the Matthew account, we've got um, many women standing by among them three here are identified three among the many are identified mary magdalene mary the mother of james and joseph and the mother of the sons of zebedee or mrs z if you want to abbreviate all right now turning over to mark we find the name salome 
Mark 15 and 16. Parallel texts help to identify her given name as either Salome or Salome. And uh, you'll note, here's the crucifixion again. And um, the mention that's here in verse 40. The centurion in verse 39. Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of, well, here we go, Mary the mother of James the Less and Joseph. Okay? Joseph and Joseph are the same name, just depending on the spelling. If you want to give it a Greek spelling or, or try to keep it more with a Hebrew spelling, it's the same person. And Salome. All right, so now we got this other list. And uh, now you could ask yourself, is there, because there are many women there, obviously Mary Magdalene is the same in both lists. Uh, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, uh, I don't think anyone seriously doubts, is different than Mary, the mother of James the Less and Joseph. Okay, um, and uh, the question is then, can we properly identify the mother of the sons of Zebedee with Salome? And I believe we can because of the close connection not only between Matthew and uh, Mark, but also because of the expressions that we find in Luke and in um, John 19. Now notice also when we reach the end of this chapter... Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. And then in chapter 16, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices and they might come and anoint him. Okay. So uh, this, this other Mary is interesting. Uh, Mary, the mother of, of uh, James and Joseph, um, <clears throat> in the way that both brothers are mentioned and then the younger brother is mentioned, and then the older brother is mentioned in the three different accounts. It's a kind of an interesting way of expressing that. Then finally, the third comparison let's draw. I, don't, I didn't put any Luke references on the screen. I don't know. Maybe, the, maybe in the Luke account we don't have um, the names of the women mentioned here. It says, uh, well, there's no women's names that are mentioned says there's a centurion and crowds came together for the spectacle. Uh, they returned beating their breasts. All his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance seeing these things. Uh, but the women aren't named in, uh, in the Luke account. Oh, here we go. Not until you get to Luke 24:10 do we have start having some of the names. And these aren't at the cross. These are at the tomb on Easter morning. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James. Also the other women. Okay, so Salome is not mentioned there. But John 19:25. Here's the fourth and perhaps the most interesting. John 19:25. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother. Now, was she mentioned in Matthew? Because we had Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. We had three names in Matthew, but Mary the mother of the humanity of our Lord was not mentioned in 
the Matthew record. Okay? Some people have tried to make that Mary the mother of James and Joseph, trying to make her the mother of our Lord, but the Mark parallel doesn't let you do that because it's the mother of James the less and Joseph. Okay? That can't be the same as, as uh, the Virgin Mary, or the formerly Virgin Mary, mother of uh, the humanity of our Savior. Okay? You like that? The formerly virgin? She's not a virgin after... All right, unless you're very Catholic and you insist she's eternally virgin. All right? Um, because Mary, the mother of the humanity of our Savior, had four more boys and at least two girls after Jesus was born. And so that's... Uh, and they weren't virgin born. So, all right. Now, in the, in the John record, his mother was standing at the cross. And only John records that. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not record that. The Gospels that were written in the 40s and 50s and 60s don't record that. It's only the fourth and final Gospel record written by the Apostle whom Jesus loved, by the Apostle who took her into his home for all these years. After she dies, after he moves to Ephesus, after he records his Gospel and his epistles, um, only now do we learn that Mary, the former virgin, uh, was standing there at the cross okay and his mother's sister mary the wife of clopas and mary magdalene all right now here's your homework or you don't have to do his homework but just you can chew on it how about that here's your puzzle are there three women or are there four men, women mentioned in verse 25 And don't allow the fact there's only two ands confuse you. You could have three ands in there. Um, Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Okay, I believe there's four women there. Some people read it as only three. Because they say there's, that his mother's sister is Mary the wife of Clopas. And really, the way that this is comed and, um, and no and in there, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, almost looks like three, doesn't it? Okay. Um, possible. Grammatically, you could read it that way. But then what you're left with is two sisters named Mary, right? Mary and Mary. Um, right. Mary the wife of Joseph, Mary the wife of Clopas. And uh, and so forth. Or you have four names here. Four women that are mentioned, including Mary, the mother of Christ. And her sister, not named. And then Mary, the wife of Clopas. And what's to keep her from being the mother of James, the and Joseph. Okay. And Mary Magdalene. So. Just get you a scratch paper and write these all down. And, and I think you'll come to the same conclusion that Mary's sister is Salome, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. All right. She is the and, and the, the fourth woman that gets introduced here is Mary, the mother of Christ. The other three are identical with the ones that are mentioned by Matthew and, and Mark. All right. If, in fact, Mary, the wife of Clopas, is the same as Mary the mother of James and and uh, and uh, Joseph, okay, which I believe we, we can demonstrate that as well that James the last was the son of Clopas, 
And so that helps to, to lock in this here as well. All right. So her name is Salome, Mrs. Zebedee. Her sons are James and John. She's the sister of the formerly virgin mother of the humanity of our Savior, which makes her Aunt Salome, which makes James and John cousins of the humanity of Jesus Christ, which is a long, old-standing tradition, and I see no reason to doubt it or dispute it, and, um, and other things there. Okay. That makes sense? Did I lose anybody? Get out your own scratch paper and then chart, chart it out yourself. And uh, should work out pretty well. All right. Thirdly, then, although their mother may have voiced it, the request remains theirs. And Jesus' answer was to question the two disciples. Point C. Although their mother may have voiced it, uh, the question, the request remained theirs. And Jesus' answer was to question the two disciples. And that's true in both accounts, both in Matthew 20 and in Mark 10. His answer is speaking to the second person plural, y'all. Y'all don't know what y'all are asking. Okay? It's not you singular. It's you plural. This is where we need our old King James. We need the thee and the thou, right, to go with the <laughs> to go with the ye and the you. All right, so this is plural. He's not speaking to her. He doesn't say you, Aunt Salome, Mrs. Ebedee, you don't know what you are asking. He's talking to you, plural. You, James and John, my cousins, sons of thunder, knuckleheads, don't know what y'all are asking. And so both the Matthew account and the Mark account are in agreement at this regard. And, and by the way, there's nothing that keeps the two of them from standing there when she comes and asks. In fact, the ten of them are, are right there within hearing range. In verse 24, hearing this, the ten became indignant. So uh, if the ten are within earshot, what's to keep the two from being within earshot? And uh, we'll talk about this next week or in a couple of weeks. Uh, why were the ten indignant? Were they indignant at what James and John were doing? Or were they indignant that they didn't think of it first? <laughs> right? You know, uh, especially Peter and Andrew. I mean, you know, there's a couple of other brothers in addition to James and John. You know, if we're going to have a right and left Sitting assignment, well, you know, who's just, why does it have to be the, why didn't it have to be the, the Zebedee boys? Why couldn't it be, uh, you know, uh, who was Peter's dad's name? Simon, son of John. Why couldn't it be, uh, you know, the uh, Peter and Andrew, the sons of John? So, um, yeah, we're going we're gonna to study their being indignant. We, we had a study on indignant not too long ago, but here we're going to see it from their attitude. And uh, remember the idea of indignant. Do you remember that? We had it not very long ago. And what motivates that? It's a, it's a disagreement. It's a dissatisfaction. And, and it's, it's uh, the idea that something is just wrong, should be done differently. They were indignant that these children were being brought to Jesus. And they, and they just absolutely felt, no, that shouldn't be happening. And then Jesus got indignant with them. 
Remember that? We'll, we'll, we'll remind ourselves of that in a couple of weeks. All right. So what was it they were requesting here? Point two. The sons of thunder hope to score some prime seating in glory. The sons of thunder hope to... And if you want the title for that, it comes in Mark 3.17. The Boanerges, the sons of thunder, they hope to score some prime seating in glory. That is uh, unanimous between Matthew 20.21 and Mark 10.37. Keep in mind, the seating is not just for the view, okay? It's not just so that, it's not for the view, and it's not, uh, you know, so Jesus can pass the salt. The prime seating, what comes with that seat? What is that seat? The seat's a throne. Yeah, the seat is authority. The seat is, is, uh, Christ is at the right hand of the Father, and these disciples want to be on his right and his left. Conceivably, and then one of them is closer to the Father than Jesus is. I don't know how that works. But with these seats come authority, come power. These seats are thrones. And um, this, is, this is satanic. Can we paint this with too fine a brush today? I don't think we can. Who is it that lusts after seats they're not entitled to? That's, that's Satan. We looked at that on Sunday. He was lusting after his, he wanted his throne to be raised above the stars of God. He wanted to take his seat in the recesses of the north. He, he wasn't entitled to that seat. He gets rebuked in Hebrews chapter 1. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand? Satan's not entitled to that seat. He wants it. And here's James and John lusting after a seat they're not entitled to. Or maybe they are, or maybe they're not. They won't know until they get there, and Jesus won't even know, because this is reserved for the Father's distribution. All right. So the sons of thunder hope to score some prime seating in glory. Grant. Grant that they might sit. These two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able... Are y'all able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said, oh yeah, we're able. We've got a hymn that uses this verse, that cites this verse. Are ye able, said the master. And uh, they said they were. The truth was they weren't. The truth is they're going to deny, they're going to flee. Eventually they will, once the church age is underway. And actually James becomes the first martyr. And uh, his brother John becomes the last. They become the first and the last of all the 12 apostles to, uh, to die drinking this cup. All right. So point A. Such seating is the Father's sovereign choice. Such seating is the Father's sovereign choice. The Son will not usurp that. God the Son will not manipulate the Father in this. It's not His. He's not going to manipulate the Father. Grant that uh, these two sons may sit, one on your right, one on your left. To sit on my right and my left is the same verse 23. It is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Tell me, when has Jesus ever defied what his Father is doing? Never. It's not his to assign. It's the Father's to assign. And uh, there's a lot more to this. We're going to have to break it down when we discuss the uh, 
the awards. You know, there's been a fire prepared for the devil and his angels. But there are seats prepared for us. Seats that have been prepared since before the foundation of the world. Good works that were prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And those good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them lead to a seat that has been prepared by my Father. Do you believe that uh, your seating assignment has been predestined? Of course. Because what's predestined all about? See, it bugs me the way the Calvinists misapply predestination. They think it has something to do with election. All right. That it has something to do with getting saved. You're not predestined to get saved. You're predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Obviously, getting saved is a part of that, but much more than just getting saved. And predestined to be conformed to the image of his son means seated on a throne because his son is predestined to be seated on a throne. And and you want to uh, try to manipulate the results on that? How about you just be humble and walk the walk that he's designed for you to walk and then accept the seat he gives you when you get there? You know, I mean, it's, it's purely satanic to try to shortcut the situation and take a seat you're not entitled to. You know, I, and you get to these other parables, you know, and uh, I think the pattern is you go ahead and go down to the end of the table and take the lowest seat imaginable. And then if he wants to move you up, then let him move, move you up. But, you know, just go ahead and take the, the little servant's stool right over in the corner. See, it's, it's actually an honor to even be in the room in the first place. Why am I here? I'll climb under the table and eat the scraps for the dogs maybe and <laughs> try, to, try to see what he has for us when we get there. So such seating is the father's sovereign choice and the son will not manipulate the father in this. And if the son will not manipulate the father, point B, if the son will not manipulate the father, how sad is it for the cousins to use their mother in such a way? If the son will not manipulate the father, how sad is it? See, this is their foot in the door. This is their hook. How sad is it for the cousins to use their mother in such a way? By the way, if, if, you, if you choose to not come to the conclusion that Mrs. Zebedee is Salome, the sister of, of Mary, then uh, there really is no explanation for why she's put into this question here. What, what possible influence would she have? What possible reason is there to have mom come and request a seat? Okay. Why would... You know, why would Jesus be influenced by James and John's mom? And we don't have any other moms mentioned. Who was Judas Iscariot's mom? Okay. Who's Mrs. Iscariot? <laughs> All right. Maybe I can write a book and get the Jabez people to publish it, and we can have a Mrs. Iscariot, Judas's mom. We'll time it to come out next Mother's Day, and we'll really, we'll, we'll make a killing. Judas's mom. It'll be kind of one of those twisted guilt things. That you better not raise your son to be a Judas kind of a, you know. <laughs> All right, God knows I'm joking. You all see my smiling face. People on the MP3 listening from Nigeria somewhere better understand this is all tongue-in-cheek. Okay. And what are these manipulations anyway? 
you know, when you, when you try to scheme and game the system and try to work and wheel and deal and try to figure out, well, what's my hook? What's my in? Who do I know? Are you not going the, the world's route? Isn't that what the world's all about? About what's my edge? What's my entrance? What's my hook? What do I, uh, you know, uh, not what you know, it's who you know. You know, that's the way the world works. Is that how the Christian way of life works? Is God a respecter of persons? Is our parentage going to make a difference? And No, absolutely not. In fact, I just see more and more of the uh, satanic uh, philosophy that underlies this whole attitude. That, hey, there's a shortcut to these, uh, to these seats. I find that pretty sad. All right, point three then. Jesus' challenging response indicates that seating assignments are based upon victorious cups and baptisms. We better learn this. Starting today, we better learn this. Do we have cups? You bet we do. Do we have baptisms? You bet we do. Jesus' challenging response indicates that seating assignments, we will all have a throne. If we suffer with him, we will reign with him. But what will be the position of that throne? What will be the ranking? What will be the authority? What will be the um, assignment? Seating assignments are based upon victorious cups and baptisms. Now, in the Matthew record, it's only cups. In the Mark record, it includes both cups and baptisms. That is a difference. Can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? Yes, we are able. My cup you shall drink. In Mark... You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with a baptism with which I am baptized? It's the fuller explanation. And it's, uh, again, it's not a contradiction between Matthew and Mark account. Both, act, both records are fine in how the Holy Spirit inspired them and how the text was written. But it is a more full record to include both cups and baptisms as Mark did. And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with a baptism with which I am baptized. And so they, they're going to have their own issues, their own testings, their own martyrdom, their own affliction, their own angelic conflict. And we'll see what the, the issue is here. Based upon victorious cups and baptisms. So point A, what's a cup? The cup is what's provided. The cup is what's provided. Sometimes it's a cup of blessing. Sometimes it's a cup of cursing. Sometimes it's a cup of suffering. Sometimes it's a cup of consolation. But whatever it is, the Father provides it. And we're expected to drink. Occasionally, if we don't drink, He forces it. <laughs> particularly when the cup of wrath is forced into the throat of the uh, those that are being disciplined. Remember Psalm 23, 5? My cup overflows. Okay. 
The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The cup is what he provides. And thankfully, he provides, and he provides even more. We can get an increased capacity to our cup, right? And we should. As each cup is filled, then the next assignment is a greater cup, which can overflow again, and then a greater cup, which can overflow again. Remember, when you're faithful in little things, he entrusts you with greater things. So the cup is what's provided. Drinking is the volitional acceptance of that provision. And so we have both sovereignty in what God provides, but we also have volition in what man accepts in terms of what God provides. There's other imagery as it relates to a cup as well. By the way, there's also a sacrifice. There are libations in the Old Testament Levitical system, drink offerings in the Levitical system that comprise of both partaking of the, of the wine in the libation or that can have application in pouring out the libation, see, and not drinking of the wine that's provided. And, and I think there's a whole realm there that I've, I want to do more study on. I want to understand it better because the pouring out has significance as Christ poured out his soul. The pouring out has significance that no uh, celebration is going to have to wait. I'm not going to drink the wine quite yet. I've got to pour it out right now. This is not the time for wine. This is the time for work. And Jesus poured out his soul because the, the celebration has to wait. Kingdom's not here yet till second advent. All right, so again, this is sub-point A under main point three. Sub-point A, the cup is what's provided, Psalm 23, 5. Drinking is the volitional acceptance of that provision. And all four of these are pretty comparable. Matthew twenty six thirty nine, Mark fourteen, thirty six, Luke twenty two, forty two, John eighteen, eleven. And every time a cup is provided, believers must make the choice. Do I drink the cup? Or do I defy the will of God? This was his volitional battle. We don't have to read all four of these. I think we can probably, one of them makes the point. There are, there are slight vocabulary differences in these account records. But it says, um, and you know the verse, he, he went a little beyond them and he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Yet not as I will, but as you will. You know what happens when you're gathered around at your Passover meal and the cups are being distributed and you let the cup pass by me means, let me hand it to the next guy. <laughs> right? He can go to the cross. See, the problem though is there is no next guy. There's no sinless Lamb of God other than the sinless Lamb of God. And it cannot pass by. There's no one to pass it to. And if he was to pass it, he would no longer be the sinless Lamb of God. This is the supreme moment of his volitional humility. If it is possible. Now, you notice it's not. It's not possible. And he's going to immediately reject the consideration of that. He says, yet not as I will, but as you will. Understand what he confesses to in this verse. He has a personal desire not to, not to die, not to 
undergo spiritual death. Not as I will. That's a personal desire. We can have druthers, but as long as we don't act on those druthers, when we submit our druthers to what God wants for us, have we sinned? No. Not at all. Not at all. See, God (laughs) assigns us things. We may not want. It may not be what we want. And when we're able to surrender our wants to, to His wants, we keep ourselves on the will of God. So is having an alternative want, is that sinful? No. Only if we submit to it and we substitute our want for His want. Simply considering what a, uh, an alternative might be, I don't think that's sinful. It can't be sinful or He would have sinned right here. Um, consider the fact that the uh, we've discussed this as well. The soul is grieved to the point of death, and a human soul under such angelic conflict testing, the human soul explores alternatives. It looks for answers, and even considers things they know to be wrong. Right. So is consideration of wrong things, is that sinful? Of course not. You know, I, I think a lot of times we we need a better definition of what temptations are. And we need a better definition of what um, considerations are. You know, if an idea crosses your mind, does that mean you've sinned? No. See, don't take that Matthew 5 passage to, to mean that. Right? You know, I know what you're talking about. If, if a man looks at a woman with lust in his heart, then he's committed adultery in his heart. Okay, But that's a lot more to it than just simply having an idea pop into your mind and wondering or thinking. Okay, Because the idea of having the cup pass from him is what he thought about. He had the thought. He had to have had the thought or he couldn't have voiced the thought. He had the thought, he voiced the thought. And the minute he voiced the thought, he took that thought captive. We have to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ Jesus. He took that thought captive in obedience to his Father. Not as I will, but as you will. Knowing that if he was to pursue his human will, he would mentally commit a sin against his Father. So he doesn't do it. He immediately takes it captive. There's more to it too. We're gonna. This is gonna be an episode we are going to go over in every nitty gritty detail, because you'll notice he wants them to pray with him, and they keep falling asleep. In verse 38, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. And um, verse 41, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Do you think Jesus Christ had a concern over? whether he would have victory or defeat here in this garden? seems to me like he has a very real concern. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He knows in his living human spirit that he has to obey the Father, but he's got this humanity. <laughs> he's got this flesh. Went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, it's a voice of an alternative, but it's the recognition that there is no alternative. 
The Father has one plan, no plan B. There are no options. He left them again, went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Now, he had three prayers, and I think that's interesting. Three times he had to admit that it cannot pass, it cannot pass, it cannot pass. And it's a wonderful parallel to Paul in his three prayers saying, take this thorn in the flesh, take this thorn in the flesh, take this thorn in the flesh. Three times, take this away from me. And the Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient. Three times Jesus had to pray this. Hmm. All right. And you can read if you want Mark 14, 36, Luke 22, 42, John 18, 11. I think the, uh, they're all pretty well identical. The, maybe the phrase is slightly different in John 18. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because in John 18 is when Peter's... Uh, Drawing a sword, and he's going to single-handedly fight off the entire Roman Empire. Uh, <laughs> and Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Shall I not drink it? The cup is what the Father assigns. It's his provision. It's the, it's the race that's set before us. We've got to run with endurance the race that's set before us. You want to use the racing metaphor, use that. You want to use the drinking metaphor, use this. God the Father gives you a cup. That's yours to drink. Shall I not drink it? Well, who'd it come from? <laughs> it came from my Father. And what does the Father give? Perfection. Every perfect gift, every good gift, every perfect thing bestowed comes down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow of turning. All right? If the Father has handed you that cup, it's perfect. You may not want to. You may not like it. It may be unpleasant. But it's perfect. The cup can also be a cup of judgment. Point B. The cup can also be one of judgment. I think our nation has a cup when we're drinking it right now. The cup can also be one of judgment. Several, several passages with respect to this. Let me just give you Psalm 11:6, Isaiah 51. Um, too many to count, really. In Revelation, of course, you got the cup that the uh, harlot of Babylon holds and makes all the nations drink of the cup of her immorality. But Psalm 11:6. You know, the Lord. It says in verse five, the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. But we've got a wonderful portion as our cup. The Lord is the portion of our cup. But here's the wicked. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. Isaiah 51, verses 17, 22, and 23 Rouse yourself, rouse yourself, arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger, the chalice of reeling you have drained to the dregs. You didn't just take a tiny little sip, you chugged the whole thing all the way down to the dregs, there's nothing left. And um, 
The rest of their divine discipline is described there. It says uh, in verse 21, Therefore, hear this. Please hear this, you afflicted, you who are drunk but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, the Lord, even your God, who contends for his people, behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of reeling, the chalice of my anger. You will never drink it again. I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who uh, have said to you, lie down that we may walk over you. You have even made your back like the ground and like the street of those who walk over it. So the cup of God's wrath is going to be taken out of Israel's hand, put in their tormentor's hand, and they will be delivered. All right, the cup can also be one of judgment. And as I said, I believe our nation is uh, drinking a cup. Thirdly, baptism. Baptism can have a metaphoric use which speaks of maximum testing. Has a metaphoric use which speaks of maximum testing as it contains the imagery of being overwhelmed by a flood. It contains the imagery of being overwhelmed by a flood. We have it in Luke 12:50. We have it in 1 Corinthians 10:2. They're all baptized into Moses as they went into maximum testing at the Red Sea and then passed through the Red Sea. The verses that speak of being overwhelmed by the flood. It's the baptism. It's the use of baptism that references maximum testing where you're just out of your depth. You are. It's over your head. And he's either going to bring you through it or you're not coming through it. <laughs> okay. Um, where am I turning? Let's start with Luke 12:50. He speaks of his own cross as the baptism. I have come to cast fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Yeah, the, the victories and glories at Armageddon, those are going to be awesome, but can't go there yet. <laughs> the first is a baptism. First is a baptism. You know, if he does not submit to this baptism, then he's not worthy to break the seals. He's not worthy to take the scroll from the Father and to break the seven seals and to unleash the wrath of global judgment. And he'll never have the... He won't be able to cast the fire upon the earth or to kindle it until he first he's victorious in drinking his cup and undergoing his baptism. Do you ever... I mean, think about the imagery of baptism itself too. You can't come up out of the water... Until first you go down, right? First you've got to be plunged under. Only then can you come up walking in the newness of life. 1 Corinthians 10.2 talks about the testing of Israel in the wilderness and the identification with Moses, baptized into Moses. But the imagery of being overwhelmed by a flood, you know how common this is in the Old Testament? Job 22.11, Psalm 18.6, Psalm 69, verses 1 and 2. Also, verse 15 of that psalm, Isaiah 43, 2. Let's uh, close with this probably. There's a D after this, but we're bumping up against the hour. Job 22. 
talking about the divine discipline here. And um, actually, this is in one of Eliphaz's speeches, uh, telling Job what he can anticipate and what's going to come upon him. Snares surround you, sudden dread terrifies you, darkness so that you cannot see, and an abundance of water covers you. An overwhelming flood. Keeping in mind, this is in the patriarchal age where uh, the survivors of Noah's flood are still walking this earth. Ham, Shem, and Japheth are still walking this earth. And their immediate descendants are still walking this earth when uh, Eliphaz gives this... uh, or, uh, yeah, Eliphaz gives this rebuke here to Job. The imagery of being overwhelmed by a flood. Psalm 18:16. A Psalm of David. And uh, all of the testing he'd been under here. It says in verse 16, He sent from on high, He took me, He drew me out of many waters, He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. In human terms, David should have died. In in military tactics and uh, logistics, David's forces should have been crushed. He He was drowning. This was his baptism. And the Lord brought him through it. He drew me out of many waters. Psalm 69 Save me, O God. This is for the choir director, according to Shoshanim. You ever heard of that name? Shoshana? A Psalm of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire. There is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. The metaphoric imagery of these floods, when you are undergoing the baptism of maximum angelic conflict testing, and who's going to get you through it? If he doesn't get you through it, you're not coming through it. That's the point. Down to verse 15. May the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me. The last of these then, Isaiah 43, 2. But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, it is he who formed you, O Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Again, the imagery of flooding. Here we've got flooding and flaming. But the imagery of flooding. So it's not unusual that the language of baptism can speak of maximum testing, which is what the Lord says he's about to face and what he promises the disciples they're going to face. We'll come back to this next week because the disciples are promised, not next week, two weeks from today, the disciples are promised suffering in the name of Christ. But eternal seating precedent remains the Father's business. They will suffer. They will drink their own cups. They will suffer for the name of Christ. But the eternal seating precedent remains the Father's business. All right. We'll come back to that subject next week and then we'll move on to main point four. The ten become indignant and Jesus exhorted them to self-humiliation. Uh, and we'll discuss that as well. It's the key to this whole passage. That if we want to exalt ourselves, we're wasting our time. 
the Father brings down those who exalt themselves. It's counterproductive. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word, for your grace, for the example of our Savior, and for the example of these prideful disciples, Father. We get like them here and there, and we want to avoid that. So help us to learn from the wrong examples and the right examples and to imitate what is right. Father, uh, again, we just thank you for taking us into these passages. We commit to you our move. We're excited about it, Father, and the details that have to be still hammered out. The issuing of the certificate on Friday, our prayer meeting Friday night, uh, the turning on of our water. Uh, everything, Father, is in your hands. But as we get ready to move, uh, we're asking for your grace and, and for your ongoing blessing. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.